Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. In the Buddha, his teaching, and the fellowship most excellent, I we take our refuge until enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other transcendent virtues, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. Last week, December 8th, was Bodhi Day, Buddha's Enlightenment. And all the schools of Buddhism celebrated as the day that the Buddha awakened. Though some schools actually celebrated as part of Vesak, the Buddha's birthday, um, and that usually falls in April or May, but certainly in Zen, um, we observe December 8th as Buddha's enlightenment. And, um, you know, most centers and monasteries uh, do Rahatsu, the most intensive and the final session of the year from December 1st to December 8th to culminate on that day of Buddha's enlightenment because Rahatsu really is a celebration of the Buddha's aspiration, the Buddha's commitment to awakening. And so by following his example and enacting, you know, that, that vow, that aspiration, and we create a thread all the way to this time, right, in this place from 2,600 years ago, when the Buddha first saw things as they are. So I wanted to speak a little bit uh, about this. So when the Buddha was still Siddhartha Gautama, he made a vow, right? He made a solemn promise to find the path that leads to the end of suffering. As we know, he saw the three signs of age, illness, and death, 
and then the fourth sign that was really the spiritual life, the religious life, the wandering life. And he decided to dedicate his life to attaining liberation. And, you know, I want to remark briefly on, on this choice. You know, if you think of all the things that each one of us could do with our human life, with the 80 or so years, if we're fortunate, that we'll have on this planet, why choose to devote yourself to something so intangible, so mysterious, and so seemingly unattainable. I think this is one of the most wonderful aspects of humanity, that, that each one of us is called to a particular path, to a particular way of living our lives, that to someone else may seem unimaginable or impractical, or just plain weird. Not all of us even have the option to follow a calling, right? Some of us are just surviving, just putting bread on the table. Some of us are doing what is expected of us. A few are fortunate enough to be living their passion, their purpose. And if you're one of them, if you're living the way you want to live, then rejoice, my friend, because few people are luckier than you. The Buddha was one such person. And yet, this isn't the Buddha's story that I'm about to tell, or it's not just the Buddha's story. And it's my story, it's your story. It's a story of every person who has said enough. Enough of this sorrow, enough of this burden of wanting and lacking, enough of this constant fighting and fleeing and gaining and losing and hurting and having. Enough of not seeing and not being seen. Enough of half living. is the story of every person who's decided that feeling is more important than avoiding, that learning to love yourself and to love others, to love all things deeply, respectfully, is the most important thing we'll ever do in this life. It's the story of someone who admits, I'm not happy, or I'm not satisfied, but I want to be. I trust that I can be, so I'm going to go looking. The Buddha went looking, and he found, the sutra says, a delightful piece of ground, which he considered perfect for the work of meditation. Just like this two by three mat. This room with enough light, enough space, enough quiet. He had his body and his mind, just like this body and mind, hungry for living. 
And he took the Bodhi seat, the seat of enlightenment. He rested his hands in his lap. He lowered his eyes and he made a vow. He made a vow to not move, to not stir until he attained enlightenment. Until he saw what had to be seen and did what needed to be done. Until he awakened to this life fully. And we know from the story of the Buddha's life that by that point he had mastered all the dharmas that could be mastered at that time. He had, in a way, put an end to all desires. Right? He pushed his body to the limit and beyond. He spent days standing on one leg, as there were groups of ascetics who did that. Days standing with his arm held high. He forced himself to stop breathing. He ate a hundred and then a dozen and then a single sesame seed a day until his body was so emaciated that when he touched his belly button, he said, he reached his spine. His skin shriveled up, his hair fell out in clumps. He beat and constrained his mind for the sake of liberation. And you know, the belief, the belief which appears, I think, in virtually every religious tradition, that mortifying the body, that denying the body is the way to freedom, it's hard to give up. It's hard to give up because from one perspective, it seems so clear that this is the obstacle. Right? This body has all these wants, all these needs, all this craving, this laziness, this restlessness, this distraction. I tell my body to do one thing and it does another. And so the answer must be to beat the body into shape, into submission. And, you know, we no longer do it with whips and crosses, mostly. We do it with CrossFit boot camps and Peloton and high-end diets and ice baths and fasting and purging and the scalpel and, and, and. And that belief runs deep. If I were thinner, if I gave up sex or sugar or alcohol, if I was in control of this body, then I would be a cleaner, leaner, meaner me. <laughs> you know, I'd get to my goal and I would be invincible. Playa del Carmen, where, where I am now, you see this everywhere. Empires have been built on this promise. Commercial empires. You know, spending our time and energy trying to control and shape and constrain our bodies is like... The example I've given in the past is like having this um, luxurious car and then spending all of your time just waxing it and admiring it instead of actually using it, actually driving it. 
or it's like decorating a jail cell. I mean, it looks nicer, but it's still a cell. Denying the body does not lead to freedom. And this is what the Buddha saw. Right at the brink of death, he realized the body is not the problem. Let me repeat that. The body is not the problem. In fact, the body is a gate. It's the vehicle for our liberation. The body is a temple. I know it sounds cheesy, but it's true. There's no more important temple where each of us will worship. No more relevant temple. And my grandparents had a, a big, huge book in their house. It was, kind of, it was big as a table. And it had the family crest and the family history. And many years ago, I read in it that my last name, Gothard, means house of God. And I saw this at a moment when I really needed to see it. It was a time in my life when being in my body was so difficult, I could barely stand it. I couldn't bear to be in my own skin. And then I read this and I thought, oh, I'm the house of God. I better start acting like it. I better start taking care of this house accordingly. So I did. I began to treat it with as much reverence as I treated the Zendo, at Zen Mountain Monastery, with the kind of awe I felt when I walked into a great cathedral and I felt the presence of something larger than my own mishigas, my own preoccupations. It didn't happen overnight, by any stretch. But gradually, gradually I understood that until I stopped fighting myself, until I stopped using my energy to berate or control or constrain or punish my body, I wasn't going to have much left over for anything else. So one day I decided Maybe, maybe I could love this body and everything it gave me. Everything it gives me every single day. And so the Buddha, at the brink of death, saw that neither pampering the body nor denying the body would lead him to peace or to freedom. And he took what he called the middle way. And this is such a delicate balance, I find. I've told the story of Sona, the monk who was walking in meditation until the soles of his feet were bleeding. And he gets discouraged. He's like, you know, I've been doing this for days. I'm in pain. I'm exhausted, and I am no closer to seeing clearly. And so he sits down, and he's kind of feeling a little sorry for himself. And he's thinking, you know, I could just go back home. I don't need to be a monk. 
I could just go home. I could give merit. I could gain merit by building a stupa, by donating money. My family would love to have me back. And the Buddha reads his mind and appears before him. And he says, you know, you were just thinking this, weren't you? And Sana says, yes. Well, before you were a monk, what were you doing? Well, I was a lute player. What happened, Sona, if the strings of your lute were too loose? Sona said, well, they wouldn't play, my lord. What happens if they were too tight? They, wouldn't, they would break. And life is really like this. Practice certainly is like this. What's just the right amount of tension? This is an excellent question to ask ourselves every day as practitioners or as really just as human beings who want to do something for this life, who want to use the 24 hours of the day rather than being used by them. How much rest do I need today? How much work, how much play, how much solitude, how much company? And so the Buddha, having realized that what he had done so far was not helping him get to where he wanted to be, he decided to nourish himself. And just at the right moment, this young woman, Sujata, appeared and offered him a bowl of rice gruel. And he nourished himself. And then his, he made his way to the shore of the Naranjana River. He washed himself, which he had not done in years. And he set his bowl on the current and said, if this is the day of my enlightenment, may this bowl float upstream. I've only seen one version of the story that, that tells of this particular event. Right? Like the Buddha was looking for a sign. We do this. We pray to God or to the Buddha or you know, some higher power. And we say, if I'm meant to leave this job, be with this person, buy this house, you, know, you name it, please give me a sign. And then we wait and we watch carefully. And lo and behold, something happens and we think, that's it. That's what I'm supposed to do. Of course, it's all happening here. And in one sense, it's us talking to ourselves. But I think it's important because it's one of those moments where I think we're really looking to align ourselves with the path, with our lives, right? Rather than going against, we want to go with. And we're asking, we're invoking that help. We're saying, show me the way I need to go. Help me to see, help me to hear, and I will listen. In Christianity, it's called petitioning. My teacher, Dada Roshi, spoke of it as invoking reality. And he was referring to the precepts, but I really apply it to, to liturgy and, and to this, you know. 
this, this asking for help, invoking the help of the universe, of your own life force, so we can align with that natural order of things. The, the Milgatha, there's that line that says, right, something like the natural order of mind. It's so beautiful. Let me align with the natural order of mind, and mind is everything. Let me align with my own karma in a way that won't bind me further, but will free me. And it's incredible that we can do this, if you think about it. Incredible that we know what to do, how to ask, where to go. Maybe not so incredible, since it's our inherent wisdom that we're tapping into. It's our clear, bright mind. And what we're saying is, help me pay attention to it. Help me to be this clarity, this brightness. And so the Buddha lets go of the bowl and immediately it floats upstream against the current and it reaches a whirlpool at the bottom of which lives Kala Naga, the Naga king, the great river serpent. And the Nagas were said to live in bodies of water, lakes and rivers, and to guard the sutras. And the bull floats all the way down to the crystal palace of the Naga king. And it reaches, there's a shelf of identical begging bowls and it settles right next to the last one and it goes clink and hearing this the naga king opens his eyes he was in a deep sleep and he thinks to himself today another buddha has appeared in the world and i better keep my eye on this one because he's going to need my help and up on the riverbank, the Buddha sat down on a mound of kusha grass, the sutra said, and he vowed to not get up until he attained liberation. This is the moment. This is the pivot point. Is the moment in which every one of us decides to trust the unknown. When we say to ourselves, I've tried everything. I've done what others said would make me happy, and it's not working. I put in the time, I've checked all the squares, and it's not working. And so really, when I asked before, why is it that some of us hear the call and respond to it? I think it's because we have to. Because we reach a point where we realize there's no other choice. All the other choices we've tried, and they didn't get us far. Actually, that's not true. They, they did. They got us to this point. They got us to this point. And for some of us, it's very clear that moment in which everything shifts. I can point to certain moments in my life where something shifted dramatically. Other times it's just more like sliding 
<laughs> toward awakening. You know, it just happens little by little. But if you're paying attention, you know, you realize you keep having this feeling like there's something off. Things are just not clicking into place. It was like somebody changed the channel while we were sleeping, and now we're watching a show in another language. We recognize the images, but they don't make sense anymore. Now, how come? I was going along with my life. I was mostly happy. I was going to the movies, going out with friends. I was going to school or I was working. And one day you think, wait, what? What is this? What am I doing? What am I doing? And it's a bummer, this period in our lives. It's a bummer. Trungpa Rinpoche used to say, if you can do anything else, don't practice, because it's going to mess up your life. I say this to people all the time. The movies you used to enjoy, the friends you'd hang out with, the rituals you had for yourself, you know, you're just your daily rituals, they just don't do it for you anymore. And you think, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? Everybody else seemed to be going along fine. What's wrong with me? It's very destabilizing. Until you understand that something's shifting inside you and that it's a good thing. Until you understand that that feeling of discontent no, until you understand that feeling your discontent, instead of covering it over, is a good thing. And it is the fuel, it's the fuel that's driving you to search for more. And you realize that wanting a deep connection with others is not too much to ask. That doing meaningful work is possible having time for solitude and reflection is not weird or luxurious, but necessary. And so, you know, in order to get past this awkward phase, we have to be willing, willing to feel this tension. You know, it's, it's like, like growing pains. We have to feel the pool of something that we don't have yet, you know, of a place we haven't reached, but we sense is possible, is near. Right? Otherwise, why would we go looking? Something in us knows, even when we don't, we can't see what it is, we can't see the particulars. And if you think about it, it's this, this same um, tension that turns art, that turns into art, or into a religious call. The poet E. Cummings said, a poet, insert a practitioner, is somebody who feels and who expresses their feelings through words. This may sound easy, it isn't. 
a lot of people think or believe or know they feel, but that's thinking or believing or knowing, not feeling. He could be describing Zen practice. And poetry, life, is feeling, not knowing or believing or thinking. It's being, I would say. He says almost anybody can learn to think or believe or know, but not a single human being can be taught to feel. Why? Because whenever you think or you believe or you know, you're a lot of other people. But the moment you feel, you're nobody but yourself. And to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. And that sounds a little bellicose, but he's talking about how revolutionary it is to be your own person. When I was still in New York City, I went to see a documentary that featured uh, Merce Cunningham of, of the Merce Cunningham Dance Company, Modern Dance. And um, <clears throat> he died a few years ago. But when he was active, when he was dancing and choreographing, um, it was a very interesting story because his, his type of dance was incredibly precise. I mean, his dancers were all like metronomes. And, and it, for that reason, it was a little robotic. And so when he started dancing, he would go to, you know, he would, they would be invited, you know, to, to dance at different theaters all around the country. People threw tomatoes at them. They threw eggs at them. They booed them. People stood up and walked out. And what did he do? He just kept on dancing exactly like he wanted to dance. He didn't change a single thing. And slowly, his following grew. And he went from being an outcast, from being weird in the dance world, to being this genius, the critics said. And it's not a very pleasant dance to watch, actually. I had a friend who was part of the company but it's so incredibly, well, precise. There really is no other word for it. And the, the, the discipline that the dancers needed to have in order to be able to dance in that way was pretty astounding. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't, you know, the thing you're used to seeing when you go to a show. It wasn't entertaining in the usual way. And this was how he was going to live his life, and nobody was going to tell him otherwise. And so 
I think every one of us is called to create what doesn't exist, whether it's out in the world or in our minds. It's not that it doesn't exist. I mean, it does, potentially. That's what Buddha nature is, right? The potential and then the manifestation of awakening. We have to bring it into being. So, of course, it's going to be difficult and uncomfortable for a while. Of course, it's going to be terrifying now and then. But it will also free you. To be nobody but yourself, completely. The Buddha knew this. And so, right at the outer threshold of the known, he sensed the realm of possibility. He sat down. He sat down on the body seat and all the trees around him leaned in and the animals hushed and the divas looked down from the sky, expectant. And the Naga king, Kalanaga, rose from the bottom of the river and he stood on his coiled tail and he fanned out his great hood over the Buddha to protect him from the heat, from the rain, Asked the potential Buddha, the thus come one, turned his mind inward. And all hell broke loose. Mara appeared. Mara, the evil tempter, the sutras say, who wanted to unseat the Buddha. And there's a sutra called the Padana Sutta, in which the Buddha actually very precisely identifies all of the Buddha's squadrons or armies. And he says, the first is sense desires, then boredom, then hunger and thirst, then craving, then sloth and torpor, cowardice, uncertainty, malice and obstinacy, gain, honor and renown, oh, that's more than 10, ill-won notoriety, and finally self-praise and denigrating others. And the whole shebang, shebang. We should recognize these armies. You sit down and after 10 minutes, you're lost in a fantasy. You're enjoying a delicious meal. You're off on a tryst in Rome or in Paris. Your stomach grumbles, you start to plan dinner, you decide you've been sitting too long and you get up to get a glass of water. You wonder when the period will end, you wonder why sitting has to be so hard. You congratulate yourself, an excellent period of zazen. You start planning what you're going to tell me, so we say, on your next private teaching. And on and on and on. During my first year at the monastery, I spent a couple of sessions with a very elaborate fantasy of creating a Zen Olympics <laughs> with Daibosatsu, a nearby monastery. 
And I had it all planned out. I mean, where the monastery we were going to, you know, what part of the field we were going to use for which events. You know, we would do the sprints. So of course, we would do relays. We had to do a javelin because that was my event. I mean, I, I had this whole thing planned out, several sessions. At a certain point, it would just click. I guess I was bored and it's like, whoosh, off I was, off I went, planning my Zen Olympics. We each have our own flavor. I mean, we each actually make our way through all of the squadrons. So the classic story that tells of Mara's beautiful daughters, you know, they could be beautiful sons. Let's say it goes either way. They come to tempt, tempt the Buddha. And that's really, that's desire and distraction. And not just that, it's also, it's looking for pleasure, it's looking for comfort. You know, the part of you that starts to wonder, you know, is it time to go to bed? Why do we have to sit so long? Why, why is that so... Then. And it's helpful. I have found it very helpful. When you start to hear these voices, when you see your mind, you know, start to go, to actually name it. Oh, there you go. There's one of Mara's daughters, or one of Mara's sons. There is discord, there is ill will, there is sloth and torpor, there is boredom, because it creates a little space. And the story says that when the Buddha saw the, the dancing maidens, he just continued sitting, he stayed on his seat. And the maidens just turn into fog. And then the armies of conflict and discord. You know, all of these monsters with horse heads and ten eyes and tiger faces, lots of arms, faces on their chests, fangs, yellow teeth, blood dripping, spiders for hands, snake tongues. You know, there's a visualization I've been doing recently, actually. It's a purification. And you visualize illness as blood and pus living your body. And you visualize the demons, the obstacles, the things that stop you on the path as insects and spiders and, you know, these critters also leaving your body. So this isn't just metaphor. You know, there's something that, that happens when we give something form, right? when we name it. And so this, this army was really all the horror, you know, all the wild hunger, the greed, coming to assail the Buddha. And again, he stayed on his seat. And all the spears and all the arrows and the, all the weapons turned into flowers. And then Mara pulled all the stops and he got right in the Buddha's face and he said, who do you think you are to awaken? Supreme enlightenment? You? I mean, think of it. Supreme enlightenment. Sound familiar? If I had a dollar for every time 
someone tells me, I don't care about enlightenment, I just want X. I'd be living the life. Why not care about enlightenment? You've heard me talk about this. Why settle for just reading the menu when you can have a delicious, supremely satisfying meal? Instead of listening to that insidious voice that says, who do you think you are to attain liberation? Who do you think you are to think that you can be free, that you can be at peace, that you can be no one but yourself? The Buddha's Dharma is called the lion's war. For a reason. That's what he did when he said, I will not move from this seat until I am free. It is the same roar when we decide this is my life and this is how I want to live it. And you don't have to become a monk or a hermit or a priest or anything. Just be you. You can just do you fully, unimpededly. So the Buddha touched his hand to the ground and he called on the earth goddess, Shtavara, to witness his enlightenment. And she appeared clothed in resplendent green, some versions say, and her voice joined with the voices of all the trees and all the stones and all the fish and all the two-legged and four-legged creatures. And together they all said, he is worthy. And then Mara and all his armies trembled in fear and they dropped their weapons, which were useless by that point anyway, some of them bowed down to the Buddha and asked his forgiveness, and others just fled. They just ran, never to come back. That moment when you let go of that thought and return to your breath, a few legions flee. And the Buddha continued sitting through the night and just before dawn, his mind broke open and he saw. He saw. And he said, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it marvelous? All sentient beings, the great earth and I have at once entered the way. Or as the Pali Sutras say, birth is destroyed the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. But this was hardly the end. It was just the beginning. And here we are, the beneficiaries of that fateful night. Series of nights. How can we be so incredibly lucky?
how can we have this opportunity to do as the Buddha did? And actually, the how doesn't, the how or the why don't really matter. What is clear is that we must have done something right. We must have done something right to be here like this. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.